2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
3: Hello and welcome to this London Review of Books bookshop event, marking the publication of Real Estate by Deborah Levy. I'm Shahida Bari, a critic, academic and broadcaster, and I'll be in conversation with Deborah about the new book. It's out now to purchase from the LRB Bookshop preferably, and as I suspect you might know, it's the third and final instalment of Deborah's memoir series, her living autobiography, which began with Things I Don't Want to Know, published in 2013, taking Orwell's essay Why I Write as a starting point, but reflecting about a writer's life. And it was followed by The Cost of Living in 2018, in which Deborah famously whizzes down the Holloway Road on her electric bike and runs over a chicken. Um, both books, we, we as we know, are, are really really about the psychic and emotional cost of being a wife and a mother in the 21st century and, and the longing for freedom financially, socially and imaginatively. And Deborah, of course, is also a very acclaimed novelist and dramatist. Her work, including the book listed Hot Milk, Swimming Home and most recently The Man Who Saw Everything. Let's start with a reading from Real Estate. Deborah, over to you for the first
2: reading. Thank you, Shahida. I imagined a house in which I could live and work and think at my own pace, but even in my imagination, this house was blurred, undefined. The odd thing was that every time I tried to see myself in this imagined house, I felt sad. It was as if the search for home was the point, and now that I had acquired it and the chase was over, There were no more branches to put in the fire. It seemed that acquiring a house was not the same thing as acquiring a home. At the same time, there was something I still wanted to find out about writing character, in particular, a major female character. Gifting her life to a man is not something to be tried at home, but that is where it usually happens.
3: Thank you so much. So tantalising. We're going to get another reading at the very end, but this is a really good place to start. This is a book about real estate and unreal estate, the longing for a place to call home, the despair of the financial difficulty of buying such a house, how removed such a possibility can feel. But those two things, the home and the house, as as you indicate in that reading, are not the same thing to you. So, so tell me about that. The difference
2: between a home and a house. Yeah, so real estate is really a, a sort of existential book. Um, it's a it's a search for a, a, a very real search for a house and a longing for home. But plenty of women don't feel at home in their house, and so although they that, that was you know the vintage story was that although that was supposed to be her domain, um she was not at home in it and needed to flee um to have any kind of um possibility of uh, finding out what it was that um her de- her own desires might be. And then I push out that theme there's a lot of unreal estate. Uh, so that's all those imagined properties that we all, you know, that, that we all have in our um, imagined property portfolios. So a real sort of yearning and longing and furnishing those houses and finding an atmosphere and ambience and mood in them. So really, that's about creating a, a, a sort of utopia, designing a world that we feel happy in. And I'm really interested, and it it can be a a very modest utopia, and I think those are the ones that are more achievable and that I'm most interested in. Then there's a bigger theme. If patriarchy is a house and owns the deeds of the land on which it's built, does that make women trespassers or tenants? On the land, in, in which case we have to pull that property down. Then another theme. I mean, it's a huge theme, isn't it? Another way in is um writing itself, language, narrative, as, as something that you design and decide who who's going to who's going to carry the story into the world. That's um, as much a political decision as a literary decision. And then I guess, because there's so many, sort of finally, um, the rupture of leaving my country of birth or one's country of birth and making that long journey to another country. So in my case, South Africa, and a big political story there because my father was a political prisoner in the struggle for human rights there. And we had to leave. And so that's the exile story. So I suppose I was always uh, obliquely influenced, I can see now, by something like V.S. Naipaul's The Enigma of Arrival, yeah. which is taken from the de Chirico painting of that title. Actually, I think J.G. Ballard, had he, he, he was a great admirer of the surrealist painters, and he had forgeries done. He had people just come and copy oh, really? um, some of those paintings. Mm-hmm. And I think that de Chirico was one of them. <clears throat> but um, that sense of Naipaul leaving Trinidad, arriving in New York, and then later in Wiltshire, and walking around Wiltshire with uh, Trinidad inside him. Um, not described as a novel, but it's clearly autobiographical, and it would probably also sort of fit somewhere into what used to be called psychogeography. There was that sort of mashup of genres that um, really interested me. And then, of course, Woolf. Yes. Um, Virginia Woolf's essays uh, in particular, because she was writing essayistically in the first person, very hard to do. And um, she made it look so effortless. So, when I was rereading A Room of One's Own for Real Estate, I sort of thought I knew that book. I thought I knew that essay, but I I sort of didn't. And I've got to just, is that okay? I've just got sort of five lines. Of course. course. So, this is from the beginning of A Room of One's Own. So, Virginia Woolf is walking, she's, she's at an Oxbridge College, and she's thinking about something, and she notices. Someone coming to, a man coming towards her. And it's a beadle, a porter. And he looks furious. And then she realises this. He was a beadle. I was a woman. This was the turf. There was the path. Only the fellows and scholars are allowed here. The gravel is the place for me. So... Although that doesn't seem like a, a sort of momentous event, being stopped by that beagle. It sort of is. And she's she's enraged because you have to remember that she wasn't educated. Mm-hmm. So her powers were sent to Cambridge, I think. But she was, she, she was educated at home and she, she was fortunate enough to have um, access to her father's library. <clears throat> and so she 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 makes this comment, you know that turf was rolled out for the scholars and the fellows, and her place was on the gravel. I think she later went to king's college london and um and she studied and she studied there and then uh, then something else that she can't say but I can say for her, which is that she she she's thinking deeply about something this is interrupted by this. This enraged porter, and she loses the thought. Oh well, you know. But in fact, her thoughts were her mind is valuable; it's worth something. And on we go with with, with a room of one's own. Yeah. So she just sets up so much, so much to um, think about, particularly writing in the first person for me. I thought of
3: a room of one's own. Re- reading real estate, of course. But I also thought about the way that you populate the room of your own here, the, even the imaginative one, both the imaginative space yeah. that you live in and your actual home. And I, I, I just I want to observe how you fall in love so easily with things as I do, too. In fact, uh, just before we came on air, you, you told me off for my poorly watered plant, which you can see behind me. And I thought I felt chastened. And I thought, of course, Deborah would notice that sort of thing, because Deborah observes things and she loves things. And in fact, in particular, a banana tree that you lavish with attention. Um, there's an egg shaped fireplace in a hotel in New Mexico that it's like a love affair when you see it. Um, and then there are the three hand painted fairground horses that you bring out at Christmas. This isn't only the, about the coveting of beautiful objects. It seems to me something else. What do objects come to mean to you?
2: Well, objects can do the speaking for us. You know, there are they're, they're all kinds of histories and emotions that are um, sort of held in objects that we project into Objects, there's never a boring story with an object, you know. Um, I'll give you an example in the pandemic. So um, I lock up my bicycle in the back car park of my block of flats under a tree, and it was winter, and I bought this huge waterproof cover. So I put it over my bike, but it was so big, I thought, well, I could just put it over the next bike locked up. (laughs) Um, I didn't know whose bike it was, but, you know, it, it's not because I'm uh, sort of particularly virtuous or anything. I just thought, well, it's just so big. So I, I put, would always put it over that bike, too. And um, and then one day, sort of about three weeks later, I didn't do that. And I met the owner of that bike who said, oh, I was devastated. It was like s- someone had, someone mysterious had put their arm around my shoulder. Oh, and it was a tough time, and then removed it, and, and a whole lot of other stories that sort have of associate some sort of stories from sort of personal stories about that action of just sort of covering mm. bikes rather than one. So you know that, that that could be a whole chapter on on, on its own. Objects really spark things.
3: In, in the book, you, you you play and you pun with the real and the unreal estate, and and I think. You observe at, at one point as you, as you've already done in our, our conversation that that creating an unreal home is a, a, is like writing a novel, and I wondered if if that's right does it is does imagining an unreal state and writing a novel activate the same
2: faculty in you writing an unreal home yeah because you, you you're imagining you you know you're imagining a place and 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 you are furnishing it. It is incredibly important to daydream and imagine uh, because it brings you closer to how you want the world to be and how you you want your world to be might not be possible, but at least you can sort of glimpse something of it. So all the unreal estate also has quite a lot of pathos because Mm. this is this is this is a book about This is is not a story that I can bend in my favour. Because if you have you have a book, real estate, perhaps you think the story is going to be, oh, she's going to find her house. It's going to be a ruin, and she's going to move in. But actually, the narrator, as I sometimes call her, who is a bit like myself, can't bend that story in in her favour. It's sort of like an anti fairy story. So the desire for um, a house. Is also in a way what keeps her um, it 's the desire that keeps her alive more than than the house a whole other a, a whole other strand to to real estate
3: i think that 's I- exactly right isn 't it that that in one way you 're writing about the fantasies that many of us have about dream properties you know um, I was talking to you about a ramshackle 15 bedroom house in Brighton with a rock garden. And an orangery that I found on Right Move. And we we all have these castles in the air, don't we? But, but also you're also sensing something. Dear, you said pathos. There is a pathos about the airiness of these fantasies, the reality of financial inequalities, mm-hmm. the pain of envy when we see wealthier friends casually disappear to holiday homes. And that's that's not just envy. That's a deep pain about. Because so many of your reflections are about women, single, divorced, unmarried women who are unproperted. And there is a pathos or a pain here too as well, isn't there?
2: Yes, absolutely. And some of the book is, is absolutely located there. And then it's located somewhere else entirely. So it's always sort of, it's, it's, it's always sort of yeah. coming to a very real longing and yearning and critique of property. And then pushes out to something else. So, so so, another influence for real estate were the film essays of John O'Confora, a filmmaker and curator I, I, I really admire. Um, he made a kind of triptych, a, a three-screen film called The Unfinished Conversation, which explored the personal and public archive of the cultural theorist um Stuart Hall, most astute, kindly, marvelous man. It was called the Endless Conversation because Stuart's, because of Stuart's idea that I find so encouraging, which is that identity is an endless, unfinished conversation. And so on the on these three screens, um, it would have uh, Stuart Hall and his family in Jamaica, where he was born and uh, and simultaneously it would be Stuart walking through uh, his college at Oxford when he won a scholarship to to study there and the third screen would be uh, political footage or historical events and so all these three were happening these these three three things were images were happening simultaneously. A confra was really experimenting with the structure of narrative and 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 with time, so so different times simultaneously could be watched by the viewer. And this was so important to me as a structure for all three books because um, they're not chronological. Uh, you can read them separately. I think most most autobiographical writing uh not all but but much of it sort of starts with childhood and then and then sort of works its way up through life well i don't um i i, I don't do that they they're mm. not really cool. those film essays um were another sort of huge help really in creating a very layered sort of collapsing time. Uh, as, as I do in The Man Who Saw Everything. It really interests me, trying to find techniques to do that. And then writing in the first person, in the storm of life. I'm not interested in nostalgia. I'm not um, interested in a sort of mythic past. I'm not interested in any of that. Um, it just seemed to me uh, a kind of dare to just... Keep an intimate but formal voice, uh, made up of any number of identities, as Stuart encouraged us to to try out. We don't have to have one identity. So that's very important for the sort of voice of the narrator in these books. So that so that's the that's the other influence, the coexistence of the of the past and the present. Which I tried through those films
3: I can see it i can I can see it in the book. I can see both the 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 very evident ways of course that certainly this book moves the story moves from London and paris and Mumbai and berlin and new york and and cape Town Cape Town very importantly, and all of these places are imbricated and overlapped, but also that there is there are different experiences in different times that are rec- coming to you in these different places that there is also a temporal mm. overlap or imbrication. Imprec- and I I wanted to ask you a bit more about Cape Town or or about Johannesburg actually and a bit, a bit more about South Africa because to my mind the key moment in, in this book is a particular section where you remember your childhood house in Johannesburg and you're exactly right it isn't nostalgic it's just the plain brute fact of it you remember an african sun and an african sky and jacaranda trees and they are all you're not recalling them but they're they're all collaged inside you like in a confra painting or an image and i or a film and i and i wonder i mean perhaps it's too obvious to ask you this but if that if that experience of severance many of us have it you know children of migrants and migrants many of us have it but perhaps not quite to the same degree as you did and in the same challenging difficult conditions whether that experience of of severance is what underpins this book and and your yearning for for real estate whether you're putting together your south african past and your your english
2: present not as a
3: kind of nostalgic exercise but just as as the fact of your
2: life yeah i think i think that's absolutely right and it's and it's all of our stories being a bit from here and a bit from there, that is the story. But it's it's, it's, it's one story in um, real estate. And it runs through um, all three books, doesn't it? Because it, it runs through Things I Don't Want to Know, where um, I go right back to childhood uh, in the middle of the book. So um, th- Things I Don't Want to Know, the first one in the series, starts with a female narrator on an escalator, and she discovers that the sort of the momentum of the escalator carrying her upwards always makes her cry and she doesn 't know why something is chasing her, and actually what 's chasing her we discover in the middle of that book is her childhood is, is her mm-hmm. childhood and um, and then I had to revisit it, and that was very painful but um, given that I had stolen. Orwell's heading, which was Historical Impulse, because that book um, had taken, I I had read Orwell's 1946 essay, Why I Write, and he had found four headings to um, describe his motivation for hammering his typewriter, political purpose, historical impulse, sheer egoism, and static enthusiasm. And I thought that I'd... I thought they were good on the whole that they stood up and that I would give them a spin from a female writer's point of view. So you put up a, um, a heading like historical impulse, and that was very confronting. I thought, well, if you're going to steal another writer's heading, you've got to go there. And so, so, so I'm looking here because um, I start with a quote from Nietzsche for that historical impulse chapter, which is from Good and Evil. Uh, in, and here it is. I have gradually come to understand what every great philosophy until now has been, the confession of its author and a kind of involuntary, unconscious memoir. And so what an encouraging way to think of philosophy as a involuntary unconscious memoir because we, we, we sort of taught that philosophy is there to teach us how to die. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so there it is. So, so so it's not chronological. So there's something that there's a problem. There's something wrong. What's wrong? What's what what actually is chasing her? And mm. and it's under historical impulse. Then in um The cost of living. Oh, my God. I I got myself this dare. What would happen if the narrator's nine-year-old self visited a 40-year-old self or a 50-year-old self in the Victorian semi in off the Holloway Road? Um, why, Why not try writing that? I was sort of... He was just never going to work, you know. And then another voice says, no, 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 try it anyway. And that was very uncanny to write, in which there's this girl and she's nine and she's in a summer dress and she's walking through the rain and she knocks on the door and her 40-year-old self says, who's that? And she says, I'm you. And she thinks, well, I'm not going to let her in. I'm not going to let that child in. She's going to make trouble. Oh, the, uh, the the 50-year-old narrator's children are sitting on the sofa watching the big bake-off. And um they, you know, they're they're excited because Mary Berry is sort of checking whether how moist <laughs> the cake is. And here is this traumatized ten year nine-year-old about mm. to in and sit on the sofa uh, with them. So that was that was um, I just I, I suppose in these memoirs I just tried things I've never um, I never thought that I would write and had to find techniques to just sort of collapse time in the present tense of these books.
3: There are there are ghosts that are chasing you up escalators and then there are children in the back of cars kicking your seat i i want to connect that that scene in johannesburg to this a later scene where you're you're being driven around cape town i think you're recalling being driven around cape town much later in life and and this time it's your two daughters who are in the back kicking your chair because you said something that's mortified them i think and i i know you said you didn't want to talk about people you want to talk about ideas today but i do want to mention your daughters not not as people but as ideas um the idea that the coming and going of children their adulthood also does something to the notion of home, of course. And I, I started to wonder where you landed in the end. I wondered whether it was, it's destabilising to lose
2: them or whether it's liberating. It's all those things. The first book starts when my children are young and real estate ends when they've left home. So we're looking at creating Creating a home and a family home, and then and then having to create another home when my marriage is on the rocks, and then right at the end, looking at the the emptiness. And so the journey with children is incredibly important through the book.
3: I I wanted to ask you to to push on that a a little bit about the domestic because you have such Respect for the domestic here, and I, and I guess there could be a kind of feminist squeamishness about being women who are interested in interiors and the domestic, but I don't sense that in you at all there's no squeamishness there's respect for the domestic you you know that these spaces are are practical and warm and homely and nurturing and sacred and i I wonder where this comes from, whether you've always had this sense whether it's come about for particular reasons that the domestic is
2: is profound. Yeah, I mean if you're lucky, it's 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 homely and warm and and, and loving. That's that that's that would be good. Um, yes I do have great respect for those women who have been the architect of other people's happiness in 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 in, in the home and, and for all and, and for, for the whole project of making a home. Um, it takes a great deal of energy and imagination and hard work. So I sort of honour that in in all the books. Yeah,
3: I, I agree, and I, I that's one of the loveliest things about the book. I, I I wanted to ask you one of the ways I was thinking about the book as I was preparing to talk to you was how the book is a, is a is a if your if your book is a house. I'm imagining your book as a house, even, even a home. It, it, if we were to think of your book as a house or a home, it would be one that would have many guests, ghosts even. There, there are so many figures who weave into the narrative. Um, perhaps, I think perhaps we could call them influences, but there's something less technical, a bit like the way you described thinking about John O'Confora's collage technique but less technical and more intimate about your relationship with these writers in particular. But I wanted to encourage you to talk about some of those guests or ghosts. And I thought maybe we could start with James Baldwin, because he's such an important figure in this book, I
2: think. Yes. How how he kind of haunts um, real estate is that um, my understanding is that Baldwin had lived in a rented house in the south of France for 17 years, the last 17 years of his life. When he died, it was never sort of brought up and made into a museum. I would have made that pilgrimage to see the ashtray on his desk and to see the table where all kinds of friends gathered to break bread and talk. So Baldwin. Is in all my books, actually, and Marguerite Duras again. She wrote very well about domestic in a book called I think it translates as Practicalities in, in English, and she's very funny. She, she she sort of she's very good on mothers. She says, you know, um, and I write a lot about I write a lot about my mother in all of these books, um, but she says, you know, there are mothers who create the sort of home that children have to leave as soon as they're 15. You have to get out of that zone immediately. And that was very interesting to me. I love how a writer like Colette writes about her mother as mm-hmm. well. So, so Giraz is just totally unsentimental. And she writes, she writes about female subjectivity so well um, and about desire. And about curiosity, and, and how if if when you kind of cease to be curious, where you're going to land, and how you're going to put some semblance of home together, that's a kind of that's a kind of depression. She's very good on that, and she's very good on um, and she's very good on children too, because she's so unsentimental. So, so, so there the are many writers, you know, there's Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. That's the, that's the cost of living. But
3: I think people, when they read the book, will encounter these ghosts and understand your relationship with them.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well...
0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
3: We we, we should turn to the audience now. We have, oh my God, Deborah, so many questions. I'm gonna try to get through at least some of them. Um, And then I I, I want to come back to you to ask you, ask you about the project as a whole, finishing the living autobiography. I'll I'll, I'll end with that and and a reading from you, of course, but let's take these questions because there are so many and they look really good. So this is Neda. I'm, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced it, Neda, Neda. I'm 41 with two kids and sometimes I don't feel I'm at home at all. I, I can totally understand that. When in your latest book you explained about unhappiness, this was exactly what I felt with my heart. Delusion of being in a family and not having a companion. Coming out of an unhappy marriage, did it work for you?
2: No. Well, thank you. Thank you for your question, Yes I I understand and I'm and I'm so pleased that I think I think you're referring to the cost of living Neda. I'm so pleased that it, it it spoke to you and um and it's very important in life isn't it to have someone who can live warmly with you and support you and and not to feel lonely in uh in, in that sense that you describe um yes it did it did work for me, and um you know you have to make another sort of life and gather your friends and your your supporters and um and to your table i uh Ned, i don't um ever sort of i don't really write i don't really i feel uncomfortable sort of giving advice, but I've spoken to you in my book. And you have spoken to me tonight, and I feel very honoured by your question. Thank you. That's a lovely question, isn't it? And a very kind answer from you. This is Leo
3: Zimmergrud, wonderfully named. Uh, thank you for your beautiful work. Do you see links between your notions of real and unreal estate and Adam Phillips's ideas of missing out and the unlived life that is constantly haunting us? and in parenthesis, is this more pronounced for women by virtue of the patriarchal landscape in which we live For the unlived life? And
2: Adam Phillips. That's from? From, from okay. Leo. Yeah. Um, well, I think in, I'm going to answer it in a really strange way. It is quite important to live an unlived life because then you've got something to look forward to, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't know. I don't. There has to be a sort of, um, there has to be a kind of unlived life to make you want to write or to make you want to get up on a Wednesday. That's a sort of contradiction, isn't it? But, but it's an interesting one. And, and I do really touch on that in all the fantasy real estate uh, all the unreal uh, real estate, which uh, also explores that idea that fantasy isn't that good for you. T- too much of it isn't that good for you. It's a bit like a sugar ball, and and you are the fly, and you settle on you settle on the sugar ball, and you sort of get intoxicated and poisoned by fantasy, and you have to come out, and you have to make do in the real world. And get your house together, you know, and um, or, or or some living arrangement in which you live your life and which you yearn and, and yearn at the same time for, for the life that y- y- you're not living. Something like that.
3: I love the idea of being an intoxicated fly on a sugar bowl. Um, <laughs> that's how I imagine myself now. Um, this is a question from Lauren Elkin. Hello, Lauren of the flanus. Um I'm so interested in the narrative line in each volume of The Living Autobiography, the way the narratives seem digressive, but actually they're so very taut. How do you approach these from a craft perspective? Are there dozens of observations or sections that get cut in order to streamline things? So this is about writing technique. How do you do it, Deborah?
2: Yes, well thank you, Lauren both for your books and your questions. I think the thing about this made-up word, living autobiography, is that it's very selective. It's not about a whole life. And, and, and an awful lot of the conceptual thinking through of these books is, is what you leave out. And then you'll know that when you that, – that the task is to sort of th- – Think very deeply about something, and it gets very muddy, as all deep thought does. Then you have to sort of come out the the other side, if you're lucky, with some crystalline prose, where those thoughts have suddenly become coherent to you. That's a struggle to one. That that that's the adventure of writing, um, and you mean it. And believe it, and so the form does get taught um, in, in, in that sense. And writing in the first person, writing something called an autobiography, is a trick in a way because you're really writing about other people. You're not so so you also having to find techniques to for 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 the reader just not to get too sick of the narrator um, or too claustrophobic. And and to um, bring in the subjectivities of others, and then there is and I and I write about this in real estate and sort of what kind of tone is going to steer, what kind of voice is going to steer um, the books. So in things I don't want to know, there is that quote I put in at the end of the book to become a writer i had to learn how to interrupt to speak louder and then louder and then just to speak in my own voice which is not loud at all i had to i had to learn how to do that through all three of the books and just going back to to, to the akroma films um, you know that 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 sort of bricolage that, that collaging of the yes. temporal of experience of speaking of speaking intimately, of honouring um, awkward thoughts, first thoughts, embarrassing and humiliating circumstances, confusion, and then something that I feel very strongly about and and, and, and this is really a, a sort of a, a a craft question, is um, it it always seems to me that um, we're supposed to sort of feel one thing at a time or feel clearly or think clearly. Well, that's on a good day. There's nothing wrong with being powerful, fragile, loud, soft, confused, very coherent, sort of giving equal status to all these to, to, to all of that. So those, those really were that was really my main concern. Um, then another thing with the narrator and, and again, I write about this in real estate. I didn't want the, the, the voice steering steering this to story to always be right, to always win arguments. I didn't want to big her up and I didn't want to undermine her either. Because that's a sort of technique, sometimes that sort of mocking, undermining to make uh, people like you. So it wasn't going to do that. So, so just sort of how 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 you're going to construct that voice is really, I think, uh, was was a major task of these three books.
3: There's an, a nice question from, and I want to know the answer to it too, from Suran Samara Singh. Thank you, Deborah, for your unique body of work. And this is very nice of you, Saran. Thank you, Shahida, for moderating. You're most welcome, Saran. We all have a lot to thank Celia for. Are you still writing in her shed these days?
2: Oh, Celia. I always say to Celia, Well, you know you're the star of my book. <laughs> and, um, and when I when I write her in, I tend to read it, read those sections to her. And um, you know, she listens. And she scowls, and um, so I'm not writing in Celia's shed because when you read real estate, you'll see that her house was sold and the shed with it. And so um, I had written nearly five books in Celia's shed, and um, it was Really devastating to pack up all my stuff because by this time I had a lot of books, a lot of objects, as Shahida has observed, and, um, and, um, I have left the shed. And you, you can read about that in, um, that move in real estate.
3: I feel like we need a fourth instalment of the Living Autobiography and it should be After I Left the Shed. I feel like that would be a good title. I, I gift it to you, Deborah. Um there's a question I I'm just gonna come to this last question because I I feel it and I I'm just remembering you, you saying at the beginning of our conversation that this is an existential book, existential and economic and polemical about feminism and money and property and ownership and the right to own and Virginia Woolf being pushed off the grass and being derailed from her train of thought. This is Anonymous, that beloved woman, Anonymous. I'm a woman in my 20s and fear I will never have the means to own property in the city where I'm beginning to build my life. I feel I'm often being interrupted by many practical beadles. What impact do you think the impossibility of property ownership in cities is having on subjectivity? And it's the subjectivity bit of that question, which I think is perhaps has not been answered by all those op ed pieces about how young people can't get on property ladders. And I wonder whether you have thoughts about what lacking a home or a house might do to our subjectivity.
2: Well, it's very fragmenting, isn't it? I, I, I understand your questions. It, it It's really important. It's a really important question. Um, so I, I I think it's. That's, that's my answer. It's, 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 it, it, it's fragmenting. I, I really hope that you find a place um, of one sort of, or another to, to you know, to, to land. Because your mind is valuable. And you need a place to think. Um, and I value your thoughts. Um, so we're talking about subjectivity, and it really helps, doesn't it, to have a table and chairs and 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 um, the light coming in through a window. So um, another way, another answer to this. Um, it's not your answer to housing in London. In in terms of my book, real estate, it's it it is um, absolutely about uh, property, all kinds of properties. But it's not really the transaction of um, real estate as, um, as as we think about it. In in the end, I regard these three books as my real estate. They're the houses. It's not you know they're, they're the houses that I have built. And in terms of Shahida walking on the grass, going back to to Wolf being turfed on turfed off the grass and on the gravel. The very last line, the very last two words in my book, I won't I, I won't give you a spoiler here, references that scene on the grass.
3: Oh, that's such a gift for, for, for people who come to read the book and haven't yet got to that scene to 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 recognise that that moment. Thank you for that. I I, I want to We're going to have a reading to close. But just before we do, I I want to to ask you about how it feels coming to the end of this, this living, living autobiography that this three memoirs over 20 years, 40 to 60 in a woman's life. And I I want to remind you of the first lines of things I don't want to know, um, which you mentioned that that spring when life was hard and I was at war with my lot and simply couldn't see where there was to get to get, get to. I seem to cry most on escalators at train stations and the place where you end up
2: at real estate. How does that feel? Yes, well, um, it does feel like an epic journey and um, it feels great. It really does. I I feel that the female protagonist I called her a narrator, didn't I? Now I'm calling her a protagonist. Uh, so, you know, we can muck about with these things. Who is something like myself? Who is like myself? Has opened the lips of that narrator. I think the, and, and she's spoken, she's spoken intimately about the turbulence of life and the pleasure of life and the search to find meaning in life. I, I don't think there's a fourth one. Sometimes sometimes I, I I find myself writing it in my head. I must admit, um, <laughs> but I sort of slap it down. Let's wait and see for that one. Can I read?
3: Yeah, well, I just, I'm just going to tell you very quickly. Molly Hewitt in the chat has said that she thinks so often of that moment on the escalator and it makes makes her feel less alone.
2: Um, so that's rather nice, isn't it? Um, yeah, let,
3: let me hand over to you to do the last reading.
2: So I'm just going to dive straight in to a conversation that um, the narrator has with her friend Agnes. Well, then, Agnes said, slipping off her shoes and moving from her chair to the rug on f- on the floor, I don't think you really want your house with the river and the rowing boat. She told me where she kept her cigarettes. I took one from her bag and lit it with her lighter, which was tucked into a secret zipped pocket. No, you are quite wrong, Agnes, I said while I blew out smoke. I want the deeds to that house. While I smoked, Agnes began to try out a yogic headstand. When she was perfectly aligned, Up went her long Scandinavian legs, her toes now pointed towards the ceiling. In fact, I said, I have been carrying that house inside me all my life. It must be very heavy then, Agnes replied. Why not let it go?
3: Thank you so much, Deborah Levy. I hope you at home can join me in thanking her in your own way. Thank you too for really excellent really personal questions. Real estate is out now and you can purchase it in person at the LRB bookshop in very place even. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.